From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Today on the show, we're continuing our special series called Institutional Shift. We're looking at the world's biggest pools of capital, pension and sovereign wealth funds, endowments, and insurance companies. Our guide through this landscape is Dave Chen, CEO of Equilibrium Capital. He joins Impact Alpha's David Bank to follow the money as institutional investors tilt toward impact. Let's jump right into their conversation now. I'm with Dave Chen of Equilibrium Capital, an old friend and a longtime mentor. Hey, Dave. Hey, how are you? I'm so happy to be back with you with this institutional shift uh, series of podcasts we've been doing, I think is is trying to get at one of the bigger and more important you know uh, threads in this whole impact investing story, which is where is the big money, the big pools of capital on the wor- in the world, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, endowments, institutions. Where is that money tilting? Um, and you know everybody's talks about, an inflection point and a tipping point and and storied or, or, or utopian future where where capital's flowing in the, towards the you know environmental and social value. And yet, is that happening? And where are we on that shift if there is such an institutional shift to have? So I'm always delighted to have your thoughts on that because you sort of live this every day, talk to these guys, work with them, get them to invest in your strategies at Equilibrium, um, which I hope we, you can tell us more about as well. And so you know, at the biggest level, you know, where are we at in the institutional shift? David, I I think that uh, let's let's tease apart, I think, two really important um, uh, parts of this picture. One is the large asset owners uh, like the sovereign wealth funds, the the big pension plans. And then let's also talk about the large financial services platforms like a BlackRock, uh, like a Newberger Berman and and the kinds of changes that are taking place there. It, on, the, on the sovereign wealth fund and pension plans, they have a particularly, this is not to let anyone off the hook, but they have a particularly tough problem because on one hand, uh, they're sort of in the middle of a number of, of juggles that they have to do. One is first and foremost, these are all fiduciary and long-term obligations. They owe they're obligated to create pension checks for, uh, for uh, uh, their various stakeholders over long, long periods. This is the long-term nature of, of those asset owners. Um, but isn't that also, does, is, is, hasn't that been argued as a driver of impact? Because they damn well better make sure those investments are worth something in 50 years. Yeah, but, but they're also obligated to generate the set of returns to uh, to meet those needs. They're also under various pressures because of gaps that they have in their funding, and so they, they have to generate returns. The next thing that, that they're challenged with is they're all starting to come on board. Uh, that's maybe an exaggeration, but many of these um, pensions are coming on board thinking about whether it's ESG, environmental, social, and governance, whether they're thinking about sustainability, whether they're thinking about SDGs, or whether whether they're thinking about the fact that they have an obligation to quote unquote responsible use uh, and deployment of the capital. They have those factors. And because many of these are so large and prominent uh, entities and institutions, they're also subject to uh, stakeholder uh, uh, lobbying, input, etc. And so they're balancing all these things. You mean they've got public officials on there as their trustees and those public officials are 
presumably accountable to the electorate and that sort of thing. Yeah, Is that- yeah. And so you have all these factors, and it, and 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 at the end of the day, they have to preserve the capital and they have to generate a set of returns. But but I think the sincerity of their move towards sustainability, ESG, SDGs, you know, is very real. I mean, we're seeing that happening in uh, both the, uh, the traditional Nordics, but we're starting to see that happen in, in in more and more of these pension plans. There's kind of a coalition of the willing, it seems. It's the Nordics, as you say, yeah. the Canadians, the Australians, yeah, and, the Californians. And 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 there's and there's. <laughs> There's oftentimes a desire, you, you know. Sometimes this reminds me of the of the uh, of the conversation we had in our graduate uh, rhetoric class at college, which was, you know, who is more ethical, the uh, the Heidegger man or the the Kantian man that you know takes care of their mother because it's duty and obligation, or because it gives them a sense of fulfillment. At the end of the day. Um, does it really matter because uh, mom and dad uh, in their retirement are taken care of? And, and in some ways, the same thing goes for, for these pensions. And are they doing this because they're macro trend observers that they don't want to be on the wrong side of, of the carbon economy? Or are they doing it because they have a deeper sense of, of their duty and obligation? And the truth of the matter is it's hard to parse through that. Almost every conversation will end up at the same place, which is that it's a bit of both. Now, that being said, one of the great challenges that, 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 that investment firms have to deal with, and especially the impact uh, firms have to deal with, as they hear this set of protocol changes, strategy changes that are taking place at these large institutions, they also have to be aware of, and this sounds incredibly obvious and and almost silly that they need something to invest in and they need something to invest in that is institutional size and institutional levels of risk and stability so size matters and where it is in the risk profile matters a lot and that's been i think a real challenge and that's where if you look underneath the surface uh, you know, things are taking shape in terms of the move towards, for example, uh, values or sustainability-driven indexing as a growth area. Uh, the purist in the impact world will say, well, that's an index. I mean, geez, that's, that's negligible impact if no impact. Uh, on the other hand, it's 40 to 50% of your portfolio. So, uh, so they are, in fact, taking action on it. Uh, we're seeing tremendous uptake on green bonds, and and both at the sponsor generation of green bonds, but also the uptake and, and absorption of green bonds. Uh, and then let's just take a pause on green bonds yeah. because I, um, uh, that always gets cited as actually one of the categories of impact investing vehicles that actually has scaled up, and it's up above a hundred billion, and it's growing, you know, a pace each year, and. And just say extremely concisely whether the green bond financing makes a material difference in financing of what kind of projects and what happens because green bonds exist that wouldn't happen otherwise. So first of all, the green bond is debt financing that is used in uh, part of the capital stack to finance in general uh, projects that have sustainable or demonstrable green attributes. Well, if you just take that apart, that's about the most direct impact that you can have. If the green bond is financing uh, wind farms in 
the stands, if it's part of a Chinese offering for green bonds to bring renewable energy and, uh, and water along the One Belt, One Road uh, initiative, uh, that has a clear impact both on the societal access to those uh, energy and water, but it also then also is, is, is building out a renewable resource depending on what the project is. Uh, you have the green bond offerings, for example, out of, out of the U.S. and the municipalities that are using those to finance uh, natural systems infrastructure for water treatment, water management. And what you've taught me and what I've learned is what makes these attractive, like you say, to institutional investors is from the outside, it just looks like another general obligation bond of a municipality or a company or, or an entity that they can look at a credit rating and they can get their coupon and it's just like any other part of their portfolio and they don't have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to, to add it in, right? That's exactly right. And, and, and look at these things, okay? At a billion dollars or a half billion dollars, these things come out in institutional lump sizes. They can put... They can buy a $10 million tranche, a $100 million tranche, all right? And they're rated instruments. Uh, oftentimes, they come with some full faith and credit of another institution. I mean, this is, this is why, but there's also a prejudice here. And I think that, 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 that people really need to take stock of this. We always think about equity markets as the driver of change. Well, you know, if you're going to build a road into, uh, into uh, uh, remote parts of the world or you're going to put in uh, renewable energy and the, the, even if you use microgrids, uh, these projects are hundreds of millions of dollars and there's going to be a very significant debt offering, oftentimes various forms of debt that are going to be required. And, and debt plays a massive role. Remember, e equity... It, people always pay attention to equity, but debt is really one of the, the, in my mind, one of the dominant tools for delivering lasting, additional, permanent impact. And it's and it's something that, as just take it back to your point about what the institutions are looking for in terms of long term and and payout obligations and whatnot. If you can get a a coupon every year on your debt investment that helps you pay your pension obligations, I'd imagine. I mean, so there's a way in which this kind of like large scale infrastructure financing is well suited to the big institutions. Is that a fair statement? A absolutely. And, and if you look at it as the green bond basically builds green infrastructure. The debt side is going to be one of the most significant parts of, of the capital base. And so let me just take it back to the original question, institutional shift. If we say that there's a massive green infrastructure rebuild that needs to happen both in this country but also around the world, and that that's, uh, as you said, mini-grid or micro-grid kind of question, but also uh, you know everything else and distributed, distributed solar everywhere, um, uh, as well as utility scale solar. I mean, the numbers on those kind of investments, which are pretty much, as you say, meat and potatoes kind of debt instruments of some sort, um, the numbers on those aren't even ticking up at the level that people say is, is needed to, to, to accomplish the, the, the low-hanging fruit part of, of, of the decarbonization effort. Um, the 2030, the between now and 2030, I think we're supposed to cut our carbon emissions in half which is, you know, which requires, you know, lots of these billions and, and, and trillions. So where's that money? So if you, one of the things that, 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 that people need to really appreciate is that 
the word scalability and repeatability is, is critically important. And that is that if every project is bespoke, uh, uh, it's hard to get repeatable scale. So I would just go back to renewable energy. And renewable energy uh, is now highly scalable, highly repeatable. And I would say that, and I'll say this in a funny way, it's no longer a scary thing to uh, finance a billion dollar uh, wind farm. And in, in the very near term, it will not be a scary thing to finance a billion dollar offshore wind project. And it's not a scary thing right now to be able to aggregate $10,000 rooftop residential solars into institutional instruments. So that's what you need to do to innovatively construct instruments and marketplaces for institutional capital. Institutional capital doesn't deal with one-offs very well. Let me give you a concrete example of this. We were in Beijing a couple of weeks ago and we were a guest of uh, the AIIB, which is the Asian Infrastructure Bank. It's the newest entity that has been that has been created to, you know, effectively look like the World Bank kind of a of a of a of a entity within within China and Asia. Is this the entity that funds the Belt and Road? No, that's that's yet another development bank. There's actually three development banks that have been created in the very very recent uh, uh, couple of years uh, around around various aspects of this topic. But the topic that we were talking about was that they've been funded to the tune of I think 26 billion dollars of commitment so far, and they're wrestling with the fact that core to what they want to do is uh, invest in uh, sustainability-driven projects. And what excited them, and I won't go into any detail on this, but what excited them about one of the conversations that we were having with them was the fact that a specific kind of project that could be highly scalable and highly repeatable. And even though these projects may be smaller in the $25 million size, they could see to it that these things could be highly replicatable and as part of distributed infrastructure could have a massive impact on the regional economies that they want to invest in, the economic growth of. But from their standpoint of risk management and underwriting, they could see the value and resonated with the value of scalable and repeatable $25 million kinds of, of investments. And, and, and that's the kind of thinking that you have to have when you're starting to think about, well, gosh, how am I going to get trillions of dollars deployed against the SDGs or against climate action? It isn't a series of customized one-off projects. It's, it's how do I scale and repeat, just like a wind farm. Are you saying that the Chinese have figured this out and we haven't yet figured it out? No. I think they're asking the question and they've resonated and sort of very much sort of resonated with, oh, wait a minute, the, the idea of scalability and repeatability so that we can actually ease the cost of, of underwriting and the, uh, the management of the risk, uh, that resonated with them as a way that they could deploy significant amounts of money quickly that are, again, big enough, scalable enough, and repeatable enough. But it all starts with, is there a fundamental investment opportunity? Is there a returns model? Is there a positive cash flow? 
and a ability to preserve the, the, the principle uh, uh, and create value from the principle that is inherent in that, in, that, in, that, in that problem. So yes, there are a million schools that are needed. Yes, there are a million wells and water treatment facilities that need to be created. Yes, there are a million microgrids. Can you innovate a business model that allows for a cash flow, a profit, a return, and yet maybe navigate that fine line between a fair risk-adjusted return versus a predatory return. And I think that's now, that's now an accepted conversation, but it all starts with, can you create a business model that works? And, and, and the fact that all these institutions are now talking about this stuff, people should not interpret that as, wow, they just turned into the biggest piggy bank that there is. No, they don't. They have this obligation to a million teachers or a million public employees that, that they're obligated for, for for 30, 40 years. That hasn't stopped. To take it back to this question of the asset managers or the wealth management firms, you started to say there was a distinction between the asset owners, the pension funds and the sovereign wealth and the asset managers? There's one group which is, uh, I'll put generation there, I'll put ourselves there, and that is that uh, uh, we saw the advantage of sustainability, we saw the macro trend of sustainability, we saw the economic implications of sustainability, and we built portfolio strategies based on that. There's a second group of asset managers that and, and, and I asked the CEO of a oh, well over $500 billion uh, financial services platform, asset management platform, hey, how come you guys are, 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 are putting so much effort and attention? And it reports into the CEO, and why are you doing this? And he said, I'll give you the most honest answer I can give you, because our clients want it. Right. And, and, and the purest. So you're making a distinction that that's a client demand for something they may or may not fully understand, whereas what you're saying that the leadership firms betting on fundamental trends of where the world's no. going, whether or, not no. the clients, no. whether or not the clients want to go. No, there. I'm not saying that. I, I'm not, Dave. I, I'm actually saying there are two forms of leadership. One form of leadership that are firms like, like I said, Generation Ourselves that sort of got it and got out ahead of the game. But... I think that, that you legitimately have to look at some of these firms that, that answer truthfully and honestly, our clients want it. And we're here to build solid financial products to meet their needs. Part of the, the, the ideological conversation that takes place in the background is, are these guys for real? Uh, are they sincere? And I can only speak for myself. I look at them and I go, does it really matter if they generate really powerful strategies and are putting portfolio managers in place that sincerely want to do that and are sincerely executing innovative strategies that execute on either sustainability, ESG, responsibility, and are bringing together to the market institutional level products? What's wrong with that? And, and that's what we see happening. And that's why I want to categorize that that set of firms is just as much on the forefront of, of quote unquote leadership 
uh, as, as firms that were mission-driven or, or early on in this game. And that's the inflection, I think, that we're also seeing. So not only are we seeing asset owners wrestling through and implementing these protocols for, for, for ESG and, and SDGs, we're now also seeing uh, big platforms stepping up to this. Look, I, I don't. I don't mean to be the eternal optimist, but, but, uh, but <laughs> no, that's good. Optimism, I think, is self fulfilling, just like pessimism. I, I, I do. I do have a word of caution here, right? And and I think it's well worth it. And that is that the early pioneers in sustainability, impact investing, etc., need to have a fundamental understanding that as markets inflect like this, the words that that the investors use may be the same as what you were used to saying, but the meanings are different and the scale is different and their requirements and criteria are different. And if you're going to be successful, and I think this is a real word of warning, if you're gonna be successful now that the feast has been put out onto the table, now that the audience is ready to hear and ready to build portfolios, you have to be very careful listening to what they really need and be able to uh, adapt and build the right kind of products that, that are necessary. I mean, we just spent the first part of this interview talking about what it really means to have an institution step up and say, yeah, yeah, we'll deploy a, a billion dollars or a trillion dollars. It's not a giveaway. It, it's, it's we will deploy that in, in an investment strategy and it's incumbent upon you to figure out how do I actually serve your needs and your unique requirements. Yeah, it's always uh, in the doing. So um, go forth and, and, and do some more and, and come back and talk to us again and tell us how this institutional shift is proceeding, Dave. Thanks very much. Thank you. We'll look forward to the next conversation. That's going to do it for this special institutional shift episode of Returns on Investment. Thanks to Dave Chen of Equilibrium Capital and David Bank of Impact Alpha for that conversation. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and prosperous future. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks for listening to Returns on Investment. We hope to speak with you again soon.